Coming up on episode 65 of the Upful Life Podcast. If you want to be a drummer, get your ass to the East Village. Play on a Monday night for $5 in tips for three people. Do that for two years and pay your freaking dues. Just go be a goddamn drummer and start from zero like all the other drummers before you that you idolized did. Nothing for granted. I'm like, when do you need me there? Okay, I got to fly out at 5 a.m., land and go right to the studio and go. That's my schedule. Like, I get up at 5 a.m., I catch the 8 a.m. flight, I land there at 11.30 because it goes back an hour. I get in a 10-minute Uber and go to the studio and go right to work. After that show, I saw a large professor backstage. Like, he was there. He's like one of my idols from when I was 15 watching him work. So I respect him. And I had played him some do-right stuff over the, you know, on the side while we were working on it. He pulled me to the side. He was like, that shit right there, that shit ain't working, man. He said, that do-right shit you did, you played me, that's what you need to do. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 65, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California, all the way live from the 215 to the 415. Y'all know how we do. So grateful you are tuning in. Indeedy, episode 65 of the Up for Life podcast is brought to you by Discovery 2023, the Bay Area's annual gathering of the psychedelic community. It takes place April 18 and 19 at the Midway SF. Shout out to the Legion of Bloom music. Discovery Sessions is under the umbrella of Discovery 2023 and their mission is culture, policy, and science. The Discovery Sessions explores the intersection of psychedelics. Culture, policy, and science is uniquely told through the Bay Area's lens. They foster challenging dialogue, share new perspectives on the role of psychedelics in our world and communities. They do so 
by creating a space for open-minded discussion and build a deeper understanding and appreciation on the potential of psychedelics to inspire, heal, and transform. The discovery sessions will feature keynote addresses, several breakout sessions, and a worldwide film premiere. Includes Hamilton Morris, Roni Stanley, Mountain Girl, Seth Ferranti, Madison Margolin, Isaac Abrams, Leonard Pickard, Vince Cadlebeck, Meow Wolf, representatives from MAPS and Decriminalized Nature, and a team of doctors and researchers from UCSF's Neuroscape Unit. In addition to the uh, two days of conference programming, there's the Bicycle Day Nighttime Festival. It's been going on for over a decade in the Bay Area in honor of Albert Hoffman discovering LSD on a bike ride in 1943. This year's musical programming, it takes place at night on April 19th after the conference is over at the Midway SF. Multiple rooms of music, live painters, dancers, digital art, psychedelic art, all that good stuff. Plus, Dirt Wire, Floozies, Iterate with Jonathan Singer, The Human Experience, Trevor Moon Tribe, Ruby Chase, Rachel Toro, Little John the DJ, Elijah, DJ Monk Earl, and I'm sure a few surprises. So again, shout out to the Legion of Bloom Music and to the Midway. And I got to mention, just a few days later, April 23, the same crew is throwing another party. It's like a block party, and it's called Electric Kool-Aid, also at the Midway SF. And the lineup is a banger. The inaugural throwdown includes Bonobo DJ Set, Toki Monster, Frank Moody, Domi and JD Beck, Flamingosis, RJD2, Boostive, Birocratic, and I'm sure a couple more curveballs to boot. So there you have it. The links will be in the show notes. Discovery 2023, Bicycle Day, and Electric Kool Aid. Before we get started here on episode 65, I gotta remind y'all to smash that subscribe button or that follow button for the Up For Life podcast. Please, y'all know what to do. And if you have the time and are so inclined, please rate and review the Up For Life podcast on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice really goes a long way to steering those algorithms in this direction, bringing us new listeners, new ears, new souls, and that's a good thing, and we give thanks. Now, if you want to get at me directly, just shoot me a line, b.gets at upfullife.com. Just send me an email. I love to hear from the people. You can also just DM me on social. On Instagram, it's at upfull underscore life. Facebook backslash Upful Life and Twitter Upful Life 187. Also, love when the people support the work that I do on the Upful Life podcast and elsewhere. 
So if you slide by upfullife.com, there's a support button right at the top menu. If you hit that support button, send me a few dollars for making you holla. While you're at upfullife.com, you can check out what I've been doing over the past few weeks. I did a big story on the hometown homies, the legendary Roots crew. They came back to uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area for the first time in a long time. So I uh, wrote something up for Live for Live Music. It's called Forever Legendary. And you can find it on upfullife.com. I also talk about a very special evening, Questlove after party, two hours strictly day last soul, just a few days before uh, their catalog was released to the world on streaming services. And of course, it was a in memory and tribute to Plug 2, True Goy the Dove. So that was a really special evening. I wrote it up, Forever Legendary on Live for Live Music. And I did a deep dive on Break Science, uh, first record since uh, 2018. It's called Mechaflora and just dropped on Live for Live Music. The name of the, the article is called Steady and Stealth. And yeah, get into the new material and uh, got something coming up with Starling Arrow and a big preview on the Discovery Sessions. All that on UpFullLife.com. Shout out to Live for Live Music. And now let's get into episode 65. It is my honor and privilege to welcome to the show Jay Mumford. Some may know him better by his former moniker as the rapper Jay Zone, but Jay Mumford is a work in progress. Yes, he's worn many hats throughout his career, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, he likes to say. He was a rapper and a producer and a beatmaker and a DJ, and now he's a drummer. Once upon a time, he was even a bassist. But in each role, despite trials, tribulations, occasional setbacks, he remained creative, productive, fruitful. His biggest shift came back in 2011 when he thought he left rap behind when he wrote his hip-hop memoir, Root for the Villain, Rap, Bullshit, and a Celebration of Failure, and then started over on drums. These days... He's the drummer for a few different bands, although his main gig is the Do-Rights, who you're hearing in the background right now. That's his duo with Tom Tom Club guitarist Pablo Martin, based in New York City. And he's also been rocking with the great Adrian Casada of Brownout and Grupo Fantasma and Black Pumas fame. His solo projects have uh, Jay flying down to Austin to work with him as well. Mumford is an entrepreneur. When he launched his Give the Drummer Some interview series for the now defunct Red Bull Music Academy, that program put a spotlight on numerous unsung heroes from the 60s and 70s, from like Harold Brown from War 
David Garibaldi from the Tower of Power, Steve Ferrone, numerous others, Leslie Ming, and we're going to hear all about that in this conversation. He released several collections of sample-ready, royalty-free drum breaks. So he's got a lot going on, and he does spares really no details in this lengthy conversation, which I got to say, I've been a fan of Jay, Jay Zone, and then Jay Mumford, going back to some of his earliest rap stuff, music for Tu Madre, my boy Jeff Artist, my, uh, you know, Yoda of all things hip-hop back in the day. He put me on game, and I've just been kind of listening to Jay Zone for years, and then, uh, you know, sort of reconnected with him like many people did as Jay Mumford, the drummer. And uh, that's who we're going to talk to for the next couple, uh, almost two hours. It's a, it's a lengthy conversation and it took place in two parts. So I did my best to kind of pare it down into one uh, cohesive dialogue. So with that, uh, hope you enjoy this uh, informative, illuminating, personal, emotional, beautiful uh conversation with jay mumford don't call him jay zone anymore he's jay mumford and my man is a drummer and we about to give the drummer some on episode 65 of the up full life podcast i'm your host b gets yes indeedy all right that's a long time in the making uh i've been a fan of this gentleman for many years different projects feels like different lifetimes finally tracked him down on a saturday afternoon it's my honor and privilege to welcome jay mumford of the do rights otherwise known formerly as jay zone the producer yes. mc welcome yes. to the up full life podcast thanks for having me man how you doing i'm doing great man i'm doing great and like i said it's it's, you know, I, I've been wanting to speak with you for a minute. Uh, mm -hmm. I've had this podcast for a few years and I've been writing about music for a long time. And mm -hmm. yeah, just following your journey and and sort of the Kevin Bacon factor of all the different worlds of mine that you've touched as a, as a drummer, as an MC and the different friendships, connections I have to people through different pieces of music of yours. It was like a Venn diagram. Really <laughs> looking forward to get to talk to you cool. um, and just catch up on the, you know, the journey of Jay Mumford. Um, yeah. I saw recently you uh, mentioned that you'd been performing with Adrian Casada and you were on mm -hmm. a record of his last year. So I kind of wanted to maybe start there and then we'll hop in the Wayback Machine. Uh, how did you get connected with him and, and, and what is your role uh, in his various uh, endeavors? Well, um, with Adrian, um, like I it was 2020, 2021, like this is before like on the cusp of the first round of vaccines and reopenings. So we're talking like, you know, early 2021, uh, everybody is still, especially, you know, musicians who play instruments or whatever, like home recording was the way to survive in 2020 because there was no gigs. And um, I did a lot of studio drumming, break, you know, custom break beats, uh, the, the, the pack, sample pack stuff anything like everybody was just trying to make a living. So when people were hitting me up, I was pretty uh, responsive. <laughs> Let's just say that. And um, Adrian uh, had hit me up, uh, you know, saying that he had this, uh, 
project of uh, boleros, you know, Latin soul kind of ballads and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that stuff because in my beat making days, I had a lot of records like that. So I was like, OK, you know, and then he just started sending me some rough arrangements of tunes and he would just say, give me the the James Gadsden 16th note thing on this. Give me like a he would just send me references and I would kind of mimic or do my own thing. And I recorded two full songs. I don't even remember what the first ones recorded were. It might have been Mentiras Con Carino, which is the big hit off there with Elay. was first but I did two full song arrangements and he was like let's just keep going you got it I don't have to tell you anything like you understand my language certain artists you just have a chemistry with and there's not a whole lot of talking you just get to playing because you're cut from the same cloth and he did stuff with brown out he has a hip-hop background he has the whole soul you know the Texas soul funk background you know the black puma stuff so he's got this wheelhouse of different influences and a lot of the influences cross paths with mine so like there's not a whole lot of you know don't don't do some crazy chops on you know you don't have to tell me that because i'm not that kind of a drummer so we just before we knit it before i knew it we did i want to say we did six or eight or twelve i can't remember we did a whole bunch of tracks and some of them ended up on a soundtrack he's doing and the rest ended up on the boleros album Fast forward about a year and a half, the album comes out in June of last year. It's well received. And he inv- he said, hey, man, uh, we're going to do like the logistics of the album. He said, it's too hard to really tour this thing because these are sensational vocalists from all over the world. They all have their own schedules. They all have their own, you know, fan bases and tours and separate things. So to get all the session players and get all the singers in one spot, he's like, it's just not going to work. So he said, I got three of the singers coming to town and, you know, I got some local. And then he said, would you like to come in and play since you played on a lot of the album? I was like, hell yeah. So, you know, June of last year, I flew down Austin and, you know, KUTX, like the NPR station. And we did a a filming of four tracks, like an in-studio thing. And they would, you know, because Adrian was busy with Black Pumas at the time, he didn't, he was going on tour, so he didn't have time to promote this record. So the whole idea was, let's just record a couple of live sessions, do multiple takes, and then kind of distribute them amongst late night television shows, uh, different programs, and see who bites. And that's what he did. I don't know what happened with the Black Pumas, but that kind of came to a, a crawl unexpectedly in a couple of months and then the thing winds up on Colbert at home and this thing is starting to get out it's on YouTube and then he's like hey we got an offer to play Austin City Limits so it's like all right I'm now I got to learn the whole album not just the four songs so I learned the whole album in my basement go down in October we did the festival and then we did the TV taping the next day 
And that was probably the best, the greatest moment of my entire professional career. We're talking, I've been in the music business roughly since I was 17, maybe 94. So with all of that combined, that was probably the most adrenaline pumping, like, wow, I can't believe it. Like that was, def- I mean, I've met like some of my heroes and that that was like, but but in, ter- in terms of like, am I real, like you have to pinch yourself in terms of what you're doing as a musician. It was like, I can't believe in 10 years I went from trying to learn an instrument as a 35 year old to um, playing Austin City Limits with an 18 piece ensemble. I, it was probably the greatest night of my life in terms of music. And I was like, wow. So then, you know, since then, like I've been going back to record uh, new material. He's got another project called Jaguar Sounds, which he's going to have to start doing live shows for that. I didn't even play on that, but he said, hey, would you be down to play the live shows? I'm like, hell yeah, because there's, there's a lot of drummers in Austin. And if you're calling me to fly in with all those logistics, I'm not turning down anything but my collar. Like, I'm going. I'm, I'm <laughs> on the first thing smoking. So I'm really grateful that he saw something in me and gave me an opportunity um, at a point where I'm just getting developed in, in this um, in, in terms of being a drummer and playing outside of my own band. It saved my spirit. You know what I mean? Like, so working with Adrian has just been amazing like it, it really get, helped give me purpose to, to what I'm doing love that and you know give thanks for for going there i mean i've been a fan of his for a long time going back to brownout and grupo fantasma and i i sent you the list but the jaguar sounds one of my favorite records of the year yeah i saw that yeah so i mean i I love what he does and i love how you fit into that mix and that actually that that performance that was uh televised it wasn't the colbert it must have been austin city limits is when i figured out you were playing in that project you know just seeing you behind the kit on that show and it kind of was like wow man because you're a long way from new york which i imagine you still live in new york yeah i still live in new york yeah. so i'm the so, only one in the band that has to fly in everybody's right. local so it's like nothing for granted i'm like when do you need me there okay i gotta fly out at 5 a.m land and go right to the studio and go that's my schedule like i get up at 5 a.m I catch the 8 a.m. flight. I land there at 1130 because it goes back an hour. I get in a 10 minute Uber and go to the studio and go right to work. And it's it's being an older music, well, older than the rest of the band, except for him. Like and I suffer with migraines. It's kind of tough to physically do it. Right. But like when I know I'm going to Texas, I rest up the weekend before. And then on Monday I go in because to me it's like you gotta you know really make a good impression, learn the tunes, be a professional, you know all that stuff. And I think as an older musician of being what I've been through, I take the job really seriously. But we all still have fun. Like he's hysterical. He's got a great sense of humor. Everybody in the band is super cool and a pro. So like I really lucked out with that, and 
you know, I'm I'm really appreciative of, of that whole situation. Yeah, I'm excited for what the future sounds like, whatever kind of gigs or any kind of road stuff you're going to do with him and any projects mm -hmm. and you keep us posted and I'll definitely come out and cover it and sure as hell enjoy it. I was thinking yeah. like it was kind of a perfect storm and, and unfortunate in some ways because, you know, we love Black Pumas and, and uh, one of uh, Adrian's drummers beside yourself, John Spees, kind of hit me Peace. to that was coming and that's going to be big. And he was right on the money. And there was a meteoric rise and then a sudden end. And a lot of people were like, hmm, what's next, Adrian? Head turns and you're in the mix. Like, he, like people want to know what the next chapter is for him. And like, you're in that chapter and you have a major role, enough of a role for him to, to import you from New York. When, like you said, he is a pick of a number of great drummers right there in his town. So, yeah, man, I'm stoked for you. And, and again, like we'll right. get through a lot of this stuff, but given your lived experience in the music industry mm -hmm. uh, to arrive at a moment and a situation like this at this point in your career, it really is kind of like a magical fairy tale. Like you've earned it. It's deserved. It. And at the same time, like you'd written this possibility off a long time ago in a lot of ways, the spotlight's on you and you're playing with an 18 piece band and you're playing with a record that's being discussed among the best of the year. Forget my blog with like the, the majors and and yeah and for you to be the guy man that's awesome and, and it's humble beginnings and that's kind of what i wanted to start with whenever quest starts his in interviews he's like what was the first time you had a musical moment when you knew music was going to be in your life <laughs> so right. i try not to jack swagger jack him too much but i know you actually right. didn't start on drums nor with rap but as a bassist so mm -hmm. let's go there like uh how did you get to the bass and what was your lived experience as like a teenage bassist okay well yeah you did your research um, yeah, man, like when I was 10 years old, we're talking 1987, like I, I had doubt, I was always musical because of my parents, they were into music. So I was always into records. I'd be fascinated by the covers. I used to draw on records with crayon and ruin them when I was like two and my pops and mother would go crazy because I was fascinated. I broke my father's stereo. So like I was fascinated with the mechanics of records, album covers, jackets. I remember being six years old and my dad bought are you experienced on cassette? Like, this is what I used to listen to in college. And me, so, so I was exposed to like, you know, a love supreme, like real cool stuff. But what happened was when I was about 10, you know, I played trombone in the school band. I had gone to summer camp and played trumpet. I had played violin. Nothing really stuck. Uh, there was a record store downtown Manhattan called JNR Music World. It was gigantic. And they carried world music. They had an old vinyl section, CDs, tapes, everything. It was, they had equipment, everything. And my dad was big into Brazilian music. So he used to go down there because he used to get Milton Nascimento, Di Maia, um, you know, Dijavan. He used to be able to find that stuff real easily there because it was focused on world music. So on the weekends when he would go down there, he'd take me with him. And one Saturday afternoon, I just went into the old, vinyl, the cutout section where records are like two, three bucks. And I'm like, well, I'm starting to get allowance for taking out the trash. My mother's giving me five, 10 bucks a week. So I'm like, I want to buy a record. So I'm going through it. And I found a record by a band called Slave. Now, my mother had a record called Just a Touch of Love, which was a big hit, late 70s funk disco thing with Steve Arrington. And I knew that record from her playing it around the house. But I'm like, oh, wow, they have other records in there. And I got, I'm learning about discography now. Like, oh, they have multiple albums. They had an album called The Hardness of the World. 
And the photos on the back of the cover, I saw the photos and I said right away, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life because the photos of them, they must have been in a rehearsal hall or on stage, but the outfits and the instruments in tandem, something about those action photos. And the bass player was a guy named Mark Adams, who is not, his name isn't mentioned as much as he should, but bass players know he's one of the greatest funk bassists who ever lived. And the guy was a genius. And he had on like some red leather pants and like a this crazy kind of like dashiki looking robe and like this Alembic wooden bass. And he's got this scowl on his face and he's in the middle of slapping with his thumb. That photo right there, I just said, but how much is this record? $3.99. Okay, I got allowance. And my father's like, what is that? I'm like, yo, this mom had this record at home. I like the picture. I'm going to buy it. And he sounded exactly what he looked like. And like, I took that record here to my grandparents' house. This used to be my grandparents' house. And I put it on the turntable in the basement. And I fell in love with funk right there. And then I started collecting and getting into funk heavy. gang as you can see on my wall like a completist uh james brown brass construction bt express bt express slave bohannon sly and the family stone ohio player like charles wright everything so i'm in fifth grade sixth grade seventh grade play, buying funk records this music is way before my time so like everybody around me is into hip-hop i'm listening to my parents music playing bass in my bedroom i don't have any siblings so i'm by myself after school every day pulling out cameo records and playing along and then you know one of my friends was like jay this is old people music like <laughs> like what are you trying to do and i lived in suburban westchester at the time so like it wasn't really kids who were playing instruments there were into like George Michael, they were into U2, you know, common rock pop of the late 80s. And I'm listening to this old 15, 20 year old music. And, you know, they're trying to get me to listen to hip hop. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to do that, man. I'm like, Just listen. So I turn on MTV Raps and the first thing I hear is EPMD's You Gots to Chill. And I'm like, that sounds like Cool in the Gang Jungle Boogie on the chorus. Listen when I tell you, boy, you got to share. And that's the day that I figured out that hip hop records were sampling the funk records that I was studying as a basis. And then I took a look at modern R&B which is where I'd be going if I was a bass player. Like, okay, I get good, and then what? Who do I play with? In the early 90s, music wasn't really sounding like the funk I was listening to. Like, at that point, it was all about New Jack Swing. So Teddy Riley had the pulse, you know, L.A. Reid, Babyface, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, like, very much programmed. And the, 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 the musicians who played funk mainly played on the road. So if it's like 
some of these acts went on the road, they had a live band, but in the studio, everybody was programming or sampling. You know, you had like Chucky Booker with the keys, like it was very much a modern sound. So I'm like, well, the closest way to get to that funk sound I like is to sample the damn records because I already have them. And then after, and after about three more years of playing bass and being in the orchestra and having no outlet, I just bought a sampler because I was like, I can do what they're doing because I already have a head start. I'm 14, 15 years old and I know all the records that the producers who are 10 years older than me are using. So like I have a head start. So like around 92 or 93, I was about 15, 16. I kind of abandoned the bass. My favorite orchestra teacher, he quit. He left, transferred out of the district, and I didn't really have an outlet. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I just went into, I taught myself how to make beats on SP 1200. And I interned at a bunch of studios, like uh, uh, Power Play Studios in Queens. Uh, I was there when Large Professor was working on Akinelli's Vagina Diner album. And I saw him using the SP-1200 and I'm like, ooh, I got to get one of those. So I saved up for my summer job and I bought one. In my junior year of high school, Vance Wright, who was Slick Rick's DJ, Vance Wright was a cousin of some kids I went to high school with, Tisa and Sean, two friends of mine. And they introduced me to Vance. And my, my best friend, Kevin, at the time, lived around the corner. And he went up to Vance's brand new studio. I was like, yo, my boy's been trying to reach you. He goes to school with Tisa and Sean. And Vance is like, all right, bring him through. And I brought him some demos I was working on. And then he hired me as an engineer because I knew how to work in SP-1200. So being 17 years old, you know, and I go to school from 8 to 2.45 and then, you know, do my homework and I'm just chilling. He's like, well... He had me as an intern. I learned the whole studio. And by the time I started my senior year in high school, I was the engineer. So I was doing sessions with Graham Puba and Greg Nice. A Greg Nice, a Greg N-O-C-E. You know, all these people. And I'm like 17 at the time. Wow. And I did that. And I learned all my chops. Because you forget, like, at the time, Slick Rick was in prison because he had gone to jail right. for shooting, shooting at... Um, I think it was his cousin, but he, he was in jail yeah. and he was recording albums from jail. And so Vance to sustain opened a neighborhood studio and it was small. But at the time, if you had a mixing board and a dad, a reel to reel, a drum machine, like you had more than most people. It's not like now where you have home setups. Like if you had equipment, you could make money because everybody needed a place to go, whether you were Graham Puba or somebody just trying to cut it. It was, a cab driver named Tony O who used to cut demos for fun. You know, so he would come through and cut demos. So I did all those sessions and I was making good money. I was honing my skills as a producer. I went, you know, I started college the following year and I still worked at the studio. And my senior project was my first album, which was Music for Two Madre. That was in 98, 99. And then it accidentally the hip hop career started and I was like, wow, like, I guess I'm not going to play any bass. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like funny. A lot of people don't know that. So when people who knew the hip hop stuff see me playing drums or playing funk or in a funk band with do rights, they're like, Oh man, you need to take it back. I'm like, well, I did take it back, but I took it back way back because 
that's what I wanted to do it was just a different instrument. And it was 35 years ago. So people who know me personally are like, man, it's like you're in fifth grade again. You, you got your funk band. <laughs> you got it. You're, you're playing funk. You're doing. But people who knew me professionally from the Jay's own stuff, they don't know that this is what my original intent was. So right. when the hip hop career went haywire and I blew out, exploded, you know, I basically imploded. And when I decided to try to do music again, I went for the instrumentalist angle because that's my natural personality. I like to be in the background back there playing the bass. Like the bass player is always the least, you know, upfront person. Like the bass player is usually people forget about it. And then, you know, so that's what I like because I like to lay low. So that's the opposite of what being a rap artist is. Like right. rap artists are megalomaniac, like narcissistic out front. Where's the drama? Like, you know, drummers are hiding behind cymbals and bass players are standing in the back. So like it fits what I always wanted to do. So it was a full circle thing that only my family and friends and close people really knew. They knew me long enough and well enough to know that that was actually how I started. I love it. Uh, on so many levels, like the, the image of the slave uh, bass player about to hammer the slap, you know, like that frozen image in that, you know, we had a record, no, numerous record stores like that in Philly, which gargantuan record stores that you take four hours in an afternoon to make your way through. And I've been there, the yeah. cut rack, right? The cutout bins. So just that image being the sort of springboard. Uh, I that just like it. I think that's really beautiful. And also, uh, I think everybody can identify with that, whether it was like whatever. For me, I was like a a, a metalhead before I was into hip hop. Right. So certain album covers spoke to me. But then with hip hop, when you saw like Raising Hell, you know, like the the imagery was just like another another world. So I, yeah. I understand like young you being drawn to that and and then finding your way to hip hop through the samples. I think that's a time honored tradition. Everyone has their own version of it. For me, it was like hearing the Grey Boy All-Stars in the mid nineties yeah. playing and hearing mm -hmm. like Sookie Sookie or It's Your Thing and then be like, oh shit, you know? Yeah. Uh, same kind of thing. And, and, and that's the sort of reverse engineering of hip hop that maybe gets lost in the digital era. I don't know, people like you keep purveying that old school thing. I think people are gonna always tap into it, whether it's the drum breaks records or the do right stuff where people can mine for various samples and kind of bring it back to the essence so right. in a lot of ways you may have closed the chapter on the rapper jay zone but you are still a living breathing organism in like the hip-hop culture oh, yeah. and diaspora the, contributing breaks yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. so yeah. i mean it's it's a nice marriage of both but there's a lot of carnage along the way and i know that's not really the story here but that was how i found out about you was my my like hip hop Jehovah in in uh in college, like the dude that that laced me with everything, that put me onto stuff first. His name was Jeff Artist, government name uh, is Jeff Artist. He'll be thrilled to know that you I talked to you, let alone he got a shout out. But uh, you know, he put some of your tracks on these mix CDs that he would just make for the love and give out to his friends. And right, the character that you created for J Zone was all those things, megalomaniac. Yeah saying foul shit off yeah. the wall fur coat you know like yeah. you had sort of created and now speaking to you are just 
watching you as Jay Mumford from afar, it's hard to reconcile the two. It's almost like a pro wrestling character. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. Can you cliff notes us through uh, the rise, fall, and implosion uh, as much or as little as you want so we can pick up from your dad, bringing it back to the essence and buying you the drums after he bought mm -hmm. you the 30 years after he bought you the bass? Right. Just give us like a run through because <laughs> I think people who don't know will be curious, like, what? This dude had a, a rap career and, and, he, and he left it behind it. From the outside looking in, it's peculiar. So I think right. uh, some folks might want to know, like, what the fuck happened? Well, what it was, was uh, if you know anything about, see, I was a producer. Like I said, I was a producer, engineer, musician. That was my identity in high school. I knew how to rhyme because, you know, you're around guys and, you know, we're rapping and you jump in. You, you know, and I was always a great, excellent writer. I was creative writing minor cops. So I always knew how to write. But if you know anything about hip hop, rappers are very unreliable, man. Like there was a joke back in the day that if you got a rapper's phone number, like you better call it or text it tomorrow because next week it's going to be disconnected. Or, <laughs> you know, like, so I was working on my senior project, Music for Tumadre, and my whole thing was to produce it. I was thinking like how Marley Marl did In Control. And at the time I was working on it, Pete Rock had put out Soul Survivor. So... I'm thinking producer compilation and I'll rhyme on one song for fun, you know, just as a joke, but I was going to get guys that I went to college with and that I knew to fulfill the rapping part so I could finish this project, graduate and move on. And I would book studio time and nobody would show up. And the only guys who showed up were Al Sheed and Huggy Bear. Al Sheed is still a really close friend of mine. And they were great artists, but then nobody else really showed up. So I had to do it myself. And that right there was the beginning of it. Speaking now. I interrupt the norm to deliver the original, the blueprint, the ill enough to stop a cruise shit. On microphones, I never clone DNA, be the new shit. Flows untraced, vocabulary's what I bruise with. On the clone, rapid guest list, someone sing. Asbestos to those that ain't breathless To write a mandatory like oxygen Plus the beat is thick like your fat not of Washington Fake Big Willie Get cuts of small bills Insisting that you players But won't get on the field We can take this back to 89 I'll play my part like half moons and flat top Battle while the track rocks I have, I was always into Prince Paul, DJ Pooh, Sir Jinx, The Bomb Squad These very cinematic albums with like flow And not every track is a head nod banger Not every track like peaks and valleys, like these guys would make these albums that were like 60 minutes long and just they had all these personalities. They had humor. They had crazy subjects. But at the time, everybody was just rapping about rapping or rapping about weed or rapping about X, Y, Z. And I was like, in order for me to make the albums that I'm envisioning, I can't find an artist who's serious, let alone, let alone ambitious enough. So I'm going to do it myself as a joke. So I did it and I put in, you know, I've handed it in my senior project and people liked it. So I started selling the cassette around campus. And before you know it, it wound up in the hands of guys like Bobito, uh, record stores in the East Village, like the Sound Library. And they're like, you got to press this on vinyl. This is dope. And I'm like, really? So I pressed it, not thinking much of it. I'm like, OK, I'll sell some copies and, you know, I'll 
get attention from my production, and then I'll go on and be the next generation's Pete Rock or Lars Professor, or, you know, similar to Alchemist or Mad Lib, or, you know, like a producer. I'll use this as my resume and then become a producer. And it just wasn't happening like that. And the record was well received, but the problem was they want to hear me rap. And I'm like, damn. And then you got Bob is like, you got to do shows. I'm like, I had never performed live in my life as a rapper. And it's like, I got to, what? I got to perform. Like, keep in mind, I'm shy. I'm reserved. Like, I'm very much a loner. Like, I don't like crowds. And when I'm on stage, I like drumming because I'm in the back. So I'm not a very crowd, you know, that's not my thing. But it's like, I started doing shows. And I said, in order for me to, like, really survive this, I got to have an outer body experience to survive. I have to create a character who's so outlandish that I can protect my personal self from the crowd. So then that's when the, the first album, the persona wasn't there. The second album is when the persona began. Excuse me, sir. Bathroom for customers only. Hey, yo, no problem. I'll take a leak on Broadway and broad day because pissing on trees just ain't my style. Tell the pigs to clean and show my hatred for the cops. Park in front of fire hydrants, steal handicap spots. Run up to Lucy Lou, chug it down and nuke your smack. Freddy music making money, I'll be A&R's bloody. Roll through the ghetto pumping ice, ice baby. Pick I give a fuck is better than the shit I heard lately. Sick of all the churches making money off the section eight. And I created that persona and I'm like, all right, I'll do this for an album. People will recognize the beats and then I'll go on and produce for Al Sheed and Hug, like a Wu-Tang thing, like how they, the Cuban links, the Iron Man, you know, I'll do solo records for them and then I'll go off and produce. Every album I did, it's like, well, you need to do one more. And then I did, I think it was Pimps Don't Pay Taxes and the whole time making that album, it's like, I really don't want to make this album, but let me show my ass as a producer and do the best I can constructing the album. And then there was an implosion within, like Hug, She, they wanted to do their own solo things. I continued working with She, but Hug went his, his own way. And I was getting some work, but not enough to survive. And then Fat Beats, which the label's like, you gotta keep going as Jay's own. Like you gotta, you know, you might as well continue. And I was like, God damn, I don't wanna do this. But I was like, I gotta survive. Like, I'm not selling enough beats and volume to survive. And, you know, like my group thing, old made billionaires thing, like it, it fell apart. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm a solo artist. So then I, tr I started trying to work with getting all the guys I admired as a kid, King T, Master Ace, Devin the Dude, like I'm reaching out to those guys to get on my records. But every time I would do a radio appearance, I would bring the drum machine, the sampler, and play beats, and I would get rapper people I knew to rhyme. And it's like, this is your album, but you you never rhyme. You never freestyle. You never rap on the radio. You never... I was like, I only rap for shows and sessions because I didn't want to rap. I had no interest whatsoever in rapping, and the character was starting to make me very exhausted. Damn, man. You're going through some shit, dog. I mean, I can kind of feel you. I'm going through some shit, too. I mean... Break off a piece of that turkey neck sandwich and, um, you know, I'm going to tell you what's up with me, you know what I mean? Uh, I dig deep into my pockets, all my bucks are spent. I'm digging deeper and still coming up with lit. I got three parking tickets, that's 315 I owe the city, so I go hustle some BCDs. Gave out 10 last week, sounds sweet to me, but they all want beats for free. I need cash in the 9 to 5, ain't an option to get some. I've been fired more times since George Jetson, so I'm waiting by the phone. Can I speak to Jason? Talking about he paid me.
So we get to like 2004. I finally say, all right, fine, I'm going to do it. So I did, I think it was a job ain't nothing but work. I toured behind it. It went okay, but then the record kind of flopped. You know, people want, you know, but it's like, now I'm knee deep in it, fur coat. I never was a drinker, but I got to be tipsy to perform because there's no way I could do that sober. So before every show, I'm drinking. You know what I mean? I'm doing the show, doing all the, you know, I'm doing songs that I don't even like. You know, and I'm like using the rapping as a vehicle for the beats. Now I'm five years in. And I think that concept right there, using something as a vehicle for something else, was the, a theme that ran throughout my career until 2016 when I finally figured it out. If there's something you want to do, do it. Focus 100% on that and live with the results. Because you can take a look around now. It's like artists will do these podcasts and have these crazy stories. And it's like, well, yeah, that'll drive up my record sales. But no, it won't really. Because like after, you know, now they want to see you do even more, you know, podcasts where you're saying crazy shit. And then you become known as that. So what started is, hey, this will bring attention to my rap career. It becomes, no, now we want to see you tell more stories. And when you run out of stories, you have nothing left. And that's what that was. That was kind of an ongoing thing. It's like I wanted to be a producer. That was my passion. Production, beats, full albums. I always wanted to produce a full album for one artist. Right. And the artist ended up being me because of creative differences and what was feasible. And then I hated being the artist. And then everything around 2008, everything fell apart. And I was so tired and exhausted from doing the rap stuff that I lost passion for the beats. And in 2008, I shut everything down and it just burned me out. And it was, it was painful. It got to the point where, you know, I would do show. I, the last show I did in 2007, I walked off after the third song. I just walked off the stage and went home and it was torturous for me. And I'm getting older at that point. I'm approaching 30. So there's that whole, where's my life going? Financial stability. My grandmother, who I live with, was starting to age. You know, so like all of this life stuff was coming along with that. And I just quit everything. Yeah. In 2008, I just quit. And I, I left, you know, for a number of years. And then in between there is when, you know, I, I wrote the book and, and, and got into the drumming. Word. Yeah, yeah, dude, there's so much to 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 unpack there, but I'm gonna now that you've kind of broken down the the brick by brick journey of you as a bassist and how you found your way to an SP and the sessions you were in, the engineering situation, being around Puba, et cetera, like served you up an opportunity to be a part of of hip hop in a way that not many people get that kind of pipeline. At the same right. time. You know, the days of Pete and CL or Primo and Guru had kind of changed at the turn of the century. And we're also yeah. getting into pirating the mixtape thing. There are a lot yeah. of fact. And then the whole like fucking Big Willie versus backpack thing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it just is a lot of factors to throw an independent artist off course. Yeah. And I think the biggest one is that your heart wasn't in it. Wasn't in it. Why a book? Um, and, and also, was that the cathartic purge that you hoped it was? Yeah. So the book, um, first of all, my grandfather wrote numerous 
books when he was alive and none of them got published because we're talking, you know, way back in the day when you had to get a book deal. There was no create space, Amazon self-publishing. So, you know, it, he never got his work published. And I was like, well, it'd be cool to have something in the family getting it published. But, it, but you know, but also at the time I was working in a high school um, on Long Island called Wine Dance Memorial High School. And my boss was actually Rakim's seventh grade math teacher because my boss had been in the district since the 70s. His name was Mr. Berger. And, you know, wine dance has its struggles with socioeconomic things, you know, poverty and different things going on. You know, the district, you know, it struggled. So, you know, I worked in that school, that high school, just thinking that I would wind up full time, try to get a pension, some benefits for once in my life. You know, I'm 34 years old, 33 years old. And I'm just hearing kids walking around the hallway talking about becoming big rap stars. Like, yo, watch it. I'm going to get a Benz. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get the Lex. I'm going to get this and this and that. I'm going to get. And I'm just like, do people really think that's what it's like? Like, and then I thought about it. I was like, yo, all the rap memoirs are people who made it big. I never read a book from somebody who didn't. Like I read LL's book, you know, I read DMX's book. Like they all had their struggles, their demons, but they were all multi-platinum artists. Like most people I knew went and got regular jobs and it didn't work out. Some people turned to drugs because they couldn't take it. Like it got dark for a lot of artists who invested all this to wake up one day and be like, damn, like I can't get a job. I can't, you know, this is all I know. It's passed me by. You know, and it's like, so I was like, it was threefold. It was, it was, you know, the, for the family, for writing a book, it was hearing kids talking about, and then it was also the bitterness that I was carrying around, not because I didn't make it, but because I felt like playing the character for so long just made me so tired. And it just left a, a bad taste in my mouth. It wasn't like, oh, sour grapes, I didn't make it. It was more like, I hated my own music. Like I couldn't even listen to it. Like whenever someone brought it up around me or, you know, like they would tag me in something like Twitter or Facebook at the time to my space, I guess at the time it, it would just bring back this bad mojo. And I was trying to get a handle on it. I was like, you can't really move on until you process this, this feeling that you're having. And I just started kind of writing out some of the stories, you know, just for fun. Like I was like, you know, trying to find the humor in it because I naturally have a sick sense of humor. So I'm like, I got to make this funny because I can't make this depressing. But as I started writing out some of the stuff into little anecdotes or like, you know, collections of stories, I was like, wow, I'm starting to feel better now that I can laugh at it. But the, the core of it was like, I wanted to show people what it's really like for a blue collar artist. Cause I feel like there's this, thing where it's like the only thing could be is if you're like rapping on a you know in front of a fat beats trying to give out cds and hustled passerbys or you're jay-z like there's no in between like yo i'm doing it for a living but one day i look like i can survive and one day i look like i gotta get a job so it's like you're, you're teetering that line and that's a very unique experience that hadn't been put in a book before so i tried to i wanted to capture that and I just wanted to tell the story and put it to bed. Um, yeah. And that's what I did. And while I was doing it, while I was writing the book, I got a phone call from Fat Beast to destroy all 
my vinyl because it wasn't selling. So I had to get it all melted down, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of records. And they were like, do you want to take these? I'm like, man, I don't even want to see that shit melted. Wow. <laughs> and so I went through all of that, you know, at that time. And that's why, like, when people kind of approach me, I'm like, yo, man, back in the, yo, you need to go back. It's, it's kind of like, I don't even want to hear about it. Like, I'm, I'm at peace with it, but I, I don't want to hear about it because I'm so disconnected from it at this point. Like, I don't have any nostalgia for it, nothing. Like, it's just, yeah. I did it. It was what it was. Like, so when they say, yo, you should put it on Spotify or repress it on 180 gram vinyl. I was like, yo, I destroyed like 5,000 of them things in 2010. Like, I don't want to go there. It's like, it's not my job to help people relive their high school years, though I appreciate, you right. know, obviously I appreciate it. But so I, I, you know, the book comes out and the book wound up being more successful than the music because people were like, yo, this shit is raw. Like, it's a real story, you know? And, and it's like, this is an angle that's not covered in music memoirs that much. And it wound up, and then there was renewed interest in my music, but I was like, nah, I really don't want to. And that's not the point, right? <laughs> that's not the point. It was like, and I did do some hip hop after that, but I'll get into it. But it goes back to what I was saying about vehicle. Yeah. The whole vehicle theory of like, well, this ain't working. Maybe if I do that, it'll draw attention to that. That never works. Not in the long term. Because you right. can't control what people will gravitate towards you for. So you could be like, yo, I'm, my goal is to get out there as a drummer but I'm gonna release Jay's own records and play drums on them. They're always gonna gravitate to the rapping and the production because that's what you establish. So like right. one in 10 people will notice the drums and then the other nine people are gonna worry about rapping, which you really don't like and beats, which it was kind of like whatever. And that happened later, which I'll get into. But you know, like once the book came out, it's kind of like I'm a musician. I've, I've been a music, musician since I was young. So it's like I, I felt an itch to do something. And, you know, my father was kind of like talking to me about it. And we're, now we're in 2011. And um, I had bought a pair of sticks from uh, Guitar Center. And I was just playing on my grandmother's pillows, just doing rudiment, you know, hand stuff and just messing around. And I had been listening to a lot of jazz drummers. Elvin Jones, Buddy Rich, Max Roach, Billy Cobham, Art Blakey, you know, uh, Philly Joe Jones. I've been listening to, oh, yeah. of course, all the breakbeat. And I was like, wow, this is dope. And you know, I was also DJing. So when, you know, you're playing all those breakbeats on 45, you're like, man, I wonder what it would be like to play that. You know, James Brown, Clyde Stubblefield, the meters, cool in the gang. Like what? So, I'm, you know, I just bought a pair of sticks, not think, thinking nothing of it. And one day I went to work. And my father was here because my grandmother was beginning to uh, deteriorate with her health. And he would help me watch her sometimes so I could go make a living. It was a two person job. And I come home one day from like adjuncting at my college. And my grandmother comes to the door. She's like, oh, my God, you got to go downstairs. And I'm like, oh, boy, the dementia again. And I'm like, Grandma, just go watch the TV. Like, no, you got to. You got to go downstairs. Something's going on down there. And I'm trying to listen. Like, did a pipe burst? Is there water? Like, what? I'm like, Grandma, she's like, just go down there. And I'm like, all right, she's really lost her goddamn mind. Like, this is like, I'm, I'm getting ready to call my dad. Like, yo, it's starting. Like, the dementia is getting real. So I go down to the basement just to get her to stop yapping. 
And then there's a drum set in the middle of the basement, like a brand new drum set, like a cheap one, but like a, a Sonor Safari. And I'm like, what the hell? And then she started laughing. <laughs> and she was like, your daddy brought that in here while you were at work. And he just, he was like carrying everything down there. And I was like, whoa. And then when he came back to the house that night, he was like, yo, man, like, it looks like you have an interest. He was like, you can't kind of dangle in no man's land forever. You have to try to find a purpose, you know, with this. He's like, I think you should try it. And I was like, damn. So I was like, well, if I'm a grown ass man, I'm 34 years old and my father is buying me a drum set, I better make something of it <laughs> or pay him back. One of the two. And I eventually paid him back when, when I got my first big check from drumming. I actually, he said, I don't want no money. I, I mailed him a check. I was like, you know. And when I got that drum set, it, it was two days after the book came out. So we're talking October 3rd, 2011 and October 5th. A Monday and a Wednesday. I'll never forget it. The book came out on Monday. I got the drum set on Wednesday. So, you know, while I'm promoting the book and the book is circulating and doing the rounds, I'm sitting down there every day playing the funk records, trying to figure it out. For about six months, I was just noodling on the kit. The book died down as everything does over time. It, okay. So now we're in April of 2012 and it's like this light bulb went off. It's like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Like, are you going to write another book? Are you going to blog for 50 bucks a piece? Are you going to go back to the school district where they basically told you, F you, we're not giving you any benefits? Are you going to go back to get grad school? Are you going to, what are you going to do? And I just had this thing where it was like my grandmother was starting to really get sicker. The dementia was getting crazier and I had to be home all day. Don't I know it? Yeah. And we hired a home health aide, but whenever I would leave, she would flip out because she needed to see me. Yep. Fuck. Because when, when you leave someone with dementia with a care with somebody like they the main caregiver she knew, but a lot of times she was unreliable. So they would send a sub. And when the sub would get there, I would leave to go to the gym or the post office. And within 10 minutes, they call me, yo, your grandmother's having an episode. I'm like, God damn it, I gotta be there every day and the aide can bathe her and change her, but I have to be present between nine and five. So that means if I'm gonna work, I gotta work nights. So I started taking DJ gigs, wedding gigs, you know, doing live sound on weddings, Craigslist stuff, writing articles, whatever it took. But I'm home all day and I'm like, I could get on Twitter and pontificate about boom bap versus trap all day, or I can put some time in on this kit that I got. And in April of 2012, six hours a day, every single day for the rest of the year into 2013, rudiments, studying, like uh, sitting at the kit, going through foot exercises, independence, listening to stuff. I mean, luckily we had YouTube at the time. 
you could, you know, they had all kinds of stuff on there, watching old concerts of, you know, Clyde Stubblefield playing behind James Brown, watching Max Roach, you know, playing, watching Buddy Rich, watching Billy Cobham, watching John Bonham, watching everybody and absorbing it. And even when I wasn't playing, I, it would be like two in the morning and I'd be like glued to YouTube, like watching this stuff. You know, I'm playing and then I'm like, well, let me record myself because the, all the videos were saying in order to get better, you have to record yourself to hear how you sound because you always sound good when you're playing to yourself. The tape doesn't lie. So they were like, film yourself and tape yourself. So after about a year, you know, after about six months of boot camp in it, uh, I called up RJD2 and because he had done he was a producer like me, but he also had experience with live instrumentation. So I said, hey man, like uh, I wanna record my drums. Like, do you have any mic recommendations? And I knew how to mic drums from college cause I had to learn that as part of my major. So it wasn't foreign to me to mic instruments. I knew I had to do it for recitals for school credit. So I knew how to do it. But I'm like, is my basement the right specs like the ceiling is low I don't have any carpet on the floor you know like it's got that old wood paneling like I'm sitting <laughs> here like and you know I'm like well I don't have a reel-to-reel -reel, but if I use a four track will that give it an analog feel so like I'm researching and I'm asking people and I'm practicing a shit ton and then one day I just set up some mics like RJ told me to get and I just recorded myself into Pro Tools and when I played it back I was like, holy shit, it sounds like a breakbeat from 1970. At, at the time, I was like, I got a lot of improving to do. Like, I'm like, it's a little wonky the time or it's not even, you know, like the actual performance because I had only been playing for like a year. But I was like, most drummers are great drummers, but they couldn't get the sound. And I was like, I got the sound. If I improve my playing, I could put all that, hip, you know, live instruments don't sound like samples shit to bed because I apparently whatever I have here is working. I said, well, let me test the water. And in 2013, vehicle, again, that magic word. Well, if I do a rap album, I can play all the live drums myself and then people will hear me playing drums and looping up my own drums. So I got the bright idea to say, well, I really don't want to rap, but every chapter in the second half of my book, because the first half of the book was my music career. The second half was a bunch of opinion pieces, which haven't aged well. I, you know, it's whatever, who cares now? But I was like, these things, there's my song fodder. Write one verse about people in cell phones. Write one verse you know, whatever. And then beats, a little secret, I never made any new beats after 2007. I made like three new beats. <laughs> I never made any beats. I had leftover beats that I never sold or used. Pulled up all the Pro Tools sessions, stripped out the sample drums and played live drums on top. I got about 
14 of those. And then I just found different things to rap about. The rest were instrumentals where I would try to do my Stubblefield kind of solo thing. Boom, in three months, I made an album, Peter Pan Syndrome. <laughs> Real life snuck up on me. I'm a new eyeglass prescription for being. Spent my twenties rocking shows. Mel burned to Copenhagen while my peers stood single file for assimilation, and it all just stopped. Now here I am, 36, still living like I'm 22 and loving it. The real world is knocking at the door. In my 30s, treat it like a Jehovah Witness and don't end. Man, fuck this trap career, dead can't hide. Time to get a job, no experience at all in a nine to five. Employers talk about what I've been up to since I was 22, making rap. And it was like, I put it out and then it's like, oh shit, he plays drums. But again, me not, me being short-sighted, they're going to think you're making a comeback. They're going to think the book was a ploy to, and in my mind, I'm like, I just want people to hear my drumming, but I'm not experienced enough to play behind a singer yet. I'm not experienced enough to, I didn't have a vehicle for my drumming. I'm like, how am I? going to show people like Instagram wasn't even around yet. Like, how am I going to show people? So I said, well, let me go back to what's familiar and use it as a resume for the drumming. But the, the problem with that was that I added to the canon that I didn't want to do anymore. It wasn't as Jay Zonish as the old stuff. Like the content went more in the old man, miserable man yells at the cloud. You know, it was kind of like it did get me on the radar of some hip hop producers yo, I want to sample your drums off your record, or yo, can you replay this? Or yo, can you get me this? Get me around sample clearance. So then the Danger Mouses and the Marco Polos or the RJD2s are coming around. And that's when the drum break pack thing started. Like Bullyfinger, who's a, a sound designer, said, hey, man, you know, those drums you're doing, you know, you could put those out and make some money. People buy them, producers can buy them. I was like, oh, really? Revenue stream. Okay, I need money. Let's do it. So it's drumming. hip-hop records with live drums over old beats from six years ago and and kind of like putting stuff out. I got into a super group um, with Prince Paul and Sasha Jenkins where I was rapping and playing drums. But again, vehicle. I want to be a drummer. They approached me, hey, we want to do this group. You could play drums because Sasha was a guitar bass player. Paul was a DJ. We could do it as a band, but then you got to rhyme. And it's like, all right, this is my one last time doing the rap. I'm going to become a drummer and move on. Again, me not knowing, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Like, if you want to be a drummer, get your ass to the East Village. Play on a Monday night for $5 in tips for three people. Do that for two years and pay your freaking dues. Just go be a goddamn drummer and start from zero like all the other drummers before you that you idolized did. That's what I know now. And ultimately, what I finally got the message was with that group, you know, with Paul and, and Sasha didn't rehearse a lot. We we were working on an album. We were creating some songs, but we never rehearsed. I would be like, guys, we got to rehearse. But they were very busy. Sasha's into film. Paul has a lot of projects. What happened was the beginning of 2016, my entire world collapsed. Like my grandmother died the week of my birthday. I went through a bad, rough, rough breakup. All of this happened like the week I turned 39 and I'm in this group and like we're rehearsing, it's not sounding good. 
the label we were dealing with at the time booked us to play South by Southwest. So I'm stressed the hell out because like we sound like we don't sound good. My grandma just died. I went through a breakup. Like I'm trying to figure out my identity from being a caregiver for 16 years. So I'm, I'm swirling. All I want to do is play drums. At this point, Pablo, my partner in the Do-Rights, we had already started working on Do-Rights and we already started jamming with his rock band. So I'm seeing the difference between playing with them where we jam for four hours before, you know, we're not even doing shows. We're just jamming to get tight. And then we have a band that has a group with Sasha and Paul where we have marketing, we have media, we have all this stuff. We have all the big names, super group, but we don't practice. We're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. So I'm like, I'd rather be totally unknown, practicing, getting tight, than having a well-oiled machine. Because then you wind up with more exposure on a well-oiled machine, but then you suck and then you get exposed. So what happened was we did South by Southwest in March and it was the worst 15, the worst slash best 15 minutes of my entire music career. Because we basically got booed off stage. Uh, we were awful. I was terrible. I hadn't rapped live in 10 years and I had to go out and rap. I had a ski mask on, thankfully, so no one knew who I was. And I was, the minute I grabbed that mic, I said, no, like, what are you doing? Like all the shit that you were, the pain you went through in the book, being miserable back when you were drinking, all the shit that you had fought so hard to get away from. You know, your grandmother passed, you're going through this grief, you're practicing eight hours a day, sweating it out, grinding for years. Practice. And then you fuck it up by going back into the J-Zone rap mode. And I was so angry and disgusted like that I did that. And I was like, this is what you get for taking shortcuts. Like, pay your dues, there's no way around it. And after that show, I saw a large professor backstage, like he was there. He's like one of my idols from when I was 15, watching him work, so I respect him. And I had played him some do-right stuff over the, you know, on the side while we were working on it. He pulled me to the side, he was like, that shit right there, that shit ain't working, man. He said, that do-right shit you did, you played me, that's what you need to do. Pablo like yo I'm coming back to New York 
And the irony in this is like, I'm doing so much work in Austin with Adrian now when it's so positive. I know. Right. My first time in Austin was so negative. So I, for a while, I was like, no, I'm never going to Austin. Fuck that. And then <laughs> it's like the opposite side. But when I came back to New York, mind you, at this time, my final rap album, which was Fish and Grits, it was at the plant being pressed. The CDs, this was the end of the CD era. CDs were being manufactured. I already spent money getting a publicist to work it. Those CDs showed up at my door. I remember they were out there for like six hours. I didn't even want to go get them off the step. I'm like, maybe somebody will come and steal them. Like, that was just my mentality at the time. And I was like, well, shit. Back to selling weed, Mr. DJ, fucking up the scenery, a clown, you remind me of Kid Ray from Lean On Me, gimmick ass, trendy ass, corny ass, DJ nights, fuck it, you'll be dead in a year, flatline, cause shit ain't been the same since cats started to compare the crack and rap game, all rappers got weed on them, you may as well sell it, fuck your gum bars, you're just a rap squeegee man, not enough gumption to start you a business, not enough discipline to work for the city, you could use a new Want to be the next 50? Go back to selling weed because your mixtapes are frizzly. I got this last album. I got to act like I care. And it just took so much energy to like put myself in that space, especially grieving death and everything else. It was a very dark place. And then people like, they want you to be the humorous J-Zone and be funny. And I'm like, yo, I was serious and in a very dark place. And all I wanted to do was fucking practice practice build some new shit and get the fuck out of there as an artist as a hip-hop artist i wanted right. to get the hell out of there the album came out came and went every interview i'm talking about drumming yo so on the album you're talking about yeah so i just bought this new camco kit and yo so uh on this beat yeah you know man i'm watching that elvin jones man you know like every rap question i would respond with a drum question <laughs> and it was like a, it was like but I had already paid for everything. Everything was in motion. But, you know, CDs, albums, vinyl, yeah. they take months to produce. So from the time I finished Fish and Grits at the end of 2015, in those three months, all that shit happened. So by the time I got to April, I had already committed to the first Do-Rights album. And I honestly think that saved my life. Like funneling everything I had, not only drumming, but composing I played keys and I would even a little bass, like learning, going back into my circle of this and learning chord progressions and writing songs, like working with Pablo, that do rights album. The holiday one? The, fir the first one. The, uh, Is that huh? like the holidays? Oh, like uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and well, yeah, well, damn, Fourth damn, of July. Did, that one. Yeah, you did, you did your research. Well, no, that was like while the group with Paul and Sasha was going on. The oh, Super okay. Like that was 2013, 14 and 15. My grandma had dementia. I don't have kids. You know, Pablo at the time was, didn't have kids, you know, wasn't married. So, and his family's in Argentina. So we would get together on holidays and jam. Oh, that's the story there. I was always wondering just like. All right. Yeah. So I, I skipped, I skipped, I skipped the, the start of the do-rights. That happened within that time. So what happened was, and uh, after, like, right around the time I was working on Peter Pan syndrome, I had been playing like a year. I put a Facebook post up. Hey, do any musicians in New York want to come to my house and jam? I've been creating these break beats. I got a good sound. I'm playing the James Brown records, but I don't know how to play with other musicians. So does anybody want to come over? Lunch is on me. Jam for an hour. And he was the only one to respond. And mind you, at the time, he's in the goddamn Tom Tom Club. 
So, you know, yeah. and, and he was the mastering engineer on all, all my old rap albums. So I had known Pablo since okay. Bottle of Whoopass. So I'd known him for 10 years at that point. And he was like off tour from the Tom Tom Club. And he's like, oh, you want to learn drums? Because he's thinking he's a musician in New York. Everybody needs a drummer. He's like, maybe if I groom this guy, this rapper producer I used to work with, if I could groom him into a drummer, I'll have a drummer. So he's thinking that. And I'm like, wow, I got this guy who is an engineer. I guess he plays bass and guitar. He's in Tom Tom Club. He must be good. So he comes over. And we the first day we jam, we came up with a song called The Chief and I, which is actually on our first album. holidays so every thanksgiving passover easter christmas fourth of july he would bring his bass over and we would jam and we would record ideas he would take it home arrange it send it back i would re-record the drums so we recorded a half of that first album while the super black stuff was going on and while i was doing fishing grits and those little 45s that were coming out like all this was happening simultaneously but do rights is back burner it's a side project because I'm about, and Pablo's thinking, yeah, he's going to go off, you know, because the group had Prince Paul, Sasha Jane, like, yeah, it, it's going to go, it's a thing that I'm going to have to prioritize that because it's bigger. And I was also playing with his rock band, four hours jamming, getting chops together. So I'm picking up my skills, playing with others, playing with Billy and Walter and Bruce and all the other musicians. So, you know, this is all going on, but even with the rock music, with the rock band, it was like, yeah, Jay is involved with this hip hop thing. It's kind of a super group. He has label interests. He has management. You know, he's, he's about to do South by Southwest. Like he's out of here. So we're going to have to find a new drummer because Jay is going to be busy with that. So he was shocked to get the call from me like, yo, South by Southwest was a fucking disaster. Where do I sign? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we had been working on it, but it was back burner. And then when I finally got the memo, oh, in order to master something, you have to focus on that. And that only, especially if you're starting like I was from the beginning. Like I, I don't have like Quest Love can do books and podcasts because he's he's a savant drummer. He can do his his late night gig blindfolded on fumes because he's just already mastered. But to come into drums new, you need the 10,000 hours as they say. And I'm like, I'm never gonna get them if I gotta write a rhyme, dig up an old beat. Okay, this person wants to pay me X amount of money for a beat. Okay, let me see how many old beats I can pull up and put drums on. Oh, I gotta make a new one. Okay, let me find a record, try to make a beat. Oh, they want to blog about this for medium. Okay, let me write that. Oh, I got a DJ gig tomorrow night. Okay, oh, I gotta go to the school and teach. You know, in 2012, six hours a day practice. By the time I got into 2015, it was like 30 minutes a day because went right back into that late 90s, early 2000s DIY thing. Right. Let me do everything. Yeah, that caused me to end up in that position in the first place, right? So everything yeah. that happened with music for Tumadre and Pimps and trying to become 
a rap artist because I had no rappers and then I'm going to write and I'm going to DJ anything to bring attention to my production. And then when they started paying attention to everything but the production, it's like, well, damn, I don't want to do that. So it's like I was about to do the same thing again. And the drumming meant so much to me, especially with my grandmother's decline. That kept my sanity because I was losing my mind trying to deal with the dementia and going down to that kit for three or four hours and getting lost and learning a Steve Gadd groove saved my sanity. So the drumming meant something to me personally. My dad bought me the kit. Like all, like drumming was personal to me. Yeah. So it's like, you have to protect your passion. And, and like, I saw what happened with the beat, with the producer thing, like how I totally lost interest. I was like, I gotta protect my passion for the drums. I'm not gonna let it get ruined by trying to be Mr. DIY, Jack of a Thousand Trades, Master of None. You know, in 2016, little by little, I started getting rid of shit. And the last thing to go was DJing. I did that. I had a lucrative DJ gig in 2017 that paid the bills while I went out and played for free every week to get my chops up. Cause I'm like, I gotta survive. I'm not making money drumming. So luckily I had a once a week DJ gig that paid good money, that paid my bills. And I was able to do what I should have done four years prior. Instead of making Peter Pan syndrome, I should have been in the village in a dive bar. You know, I, I auditioned for Ben Pirani, who's the soul singer on Coal Mine Records. You know, right after the whole meltdown thing, I, you know, in 2016, I auditioned and got in. first audition cool ben is playing pablo and, and his wife his wife lulu lewis the rock band they're playing we're recording do rights i'm getting calls to do studio gigs so now i'm drumming all the time and then on thursday night i go dj corporate make my money and then the rest of the week drums 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 and that went on for like a year and a half and when i finally got i lost the dj gig because they cut me I lost that money, but then I was like, wait a minute, the training wheels came off. It's like, oh, I'm riding. Right. Like, I'm, because you put the time in. Like, finally, yeah. like, you're, you're not trying to rap or make a beat or write a blog post, you know. And then I had to give the drummer some podcasts around that time. So I'm getting all this game from the yeah. greats that I admire. I'm interviewing Purdy. David Garibaldi, George Brown from Cool in the Gang, Greg, Greg Webster, Ohio players, Mike freaking Clark, yeah. the greatest funk jazz, Oakland funk jazz drummers of all time. I said Garibaldi. Um, Greg Errico. Greg Errico. Harold Brown from War. Steve Arrington from Slave himself. Steve freaking oh, Arrington. Circle. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I'm doing the blogging slash podcasting thing. But that's not me writing about generational rap shit. It's me interviewing drummers. Okay, I'm interviewing, but I'm also practicing while I'm interviewing them because I'm learning 
stuff to apply to my journey. So one thing, all those drummers had different styles. They had oh, different yeah. genres, different. One thing they all had in common when they started playing drums, they didn't do nothing but play drums. And I was like, that is what the common denominator is, what's going to get me over the hump. None of them had to maintain social media. None of them had to mail Bandcamp orders. None of them had to go to iMovie and edit a video for YouTube. Like just being an independent DIY artist, you're spending four or five hours a day just to survive, just to function. So the other four hours you have have to all go into your craft. Those guys played eight, 10 hours a day. So it's like, damn, like I have no choice but to do band camp orders to this, that, the other. But that means that the four hours I get to practice, they all have to go to drumming. I can't split my time. I can't go do a DJ gig for 50 bucks on a Friday night. Like I can't, you know, right. this guy wants a beat. I don't even make beats, but he wants a beat, a couple of hundred bucks. Okay, now I got to go back through my records and find some crazy loop. And then I got, I realize how insane it is to do it. But when you're in survival mode, gig economy, quote unquote, it becomes about making money, survival and throwing things to the wall and whatever sticks, you take that thing and say, hey, look, I do all this other stuff, but it doesn't work that way. Just keep throwing that one dart at the wall until that sticks rather than throwing everything. All of this became painfully clear as I met my idols, uh, Ronald Bell from Cool and the Gang, rest in peace. Like he wasn't a drummer, but he's my greatest musical influence. <laughs> standpoint I, I went to the guy's house I sat down with him in his backyard and he told me these stories and he passed two years later and he just talked about cool in the gang like their years coming up how many hours they played one instrument you know and, and like the focus and dedication like no memes on social media no <laughs> going back and forth on Twitter about boom bap versus this just right. craft, that's it. And and it's like meeting elder statesmen, I was like, that's what made those guys so freaking good. Yeah. <laughs> the same way I was on that SP 1200 in high school, the same way that when I wrote the book, I wasn't making any music. I had Those are the two best things I did, producing and writing the book. Drumming is there because I took the, the two best things. I look back at my developmental years, I wasn't doing nothing else but that. So, you know, I, I got tired of the, you know, I, I totally banned the jack of all trades thing from my life. Yeah, I mean, for your own sanity and for the good of your passion. And, and like you said, to protect the sacred discipline of drumming, the meditation, the love it was like the one thing that had not been, you know, uh, 
poisoned by the industry and the realities. And I really think it's a beautiful narrative uh, of your your late grandmother, you know, egging you on to go downstairs. Your dad have put the kit there. I mean, there's just, without getting corny, like that's just really heart medicine. And no, to know is, that, that you took that hand off and this is what you're doing with it. Yeah. It's, it's just a beautiful story and I, I appreciate it. And again, like every answer you give me, there's a lot to unpack. And I think it's really crazy to think that you wrote that sort of, I'm going to tear up and, and, and sort of self-immolate my career book and then somehow still didn't let it go. And it, you had to be like literally booed off the stage. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that's what it takes. And I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. I do think that all the game that you collected in the trials and tribulations of trying to be a independent rapper producer does still inform your perspective of how to move through music. Oh industry, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How to deal with people relationships. So it wasn't all for naught. No, no, it wasn't all for nothing. No. Right. Not and, and I think that that, that puts you in a unique position having lived through that and mm. having those life and industry experiences as you move into this next chapter. Another thing which you explained really, really thoroughly is the, the, the mechanics of working the SP, the sort of aesthetics of how a drum or kick or snare or hi-hat is mic'd, the sort of ethos of, quote, back in the day, that 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 garage funk raw shit that yeah. people buy thousands of dollars of software or rent these studios and you set it up right there where you learn to play in your grandparents' house. That's the type of stuff that a lot of other cats they don't have the wherewithal to understand the mechanics of how a beat is made, what makes a drum sound the way it does. I was talking to one of my dear friends, Adam Deitch. Deitch, that's my man. Yeah, he that's said the same man. about you. He said to send his regards. But his, because I pinged him, I'm like, yo, I'm about to talk to Jay Zone. I might be a little out of my element. And he was like, dude, you'll be good. But the key with, with you know, like your perspective is that you have the ability to make the beats and to be the drummer. And you got respect in both lanes. You got producers who respect your game, you know, whether as Jay Zone or whatever. And you got drummers, whether it be Adam or Questlove, put up a video just the other day of of like you recreating this break that had eluded him. I remember yeah. it was like the, the, the promo, biggest, yeah. the flowers that you got on that from, you know, Amir that you can't really. That, that's the attaboy that had to fill your heart. And so, oh, yeah, like, no, that 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 was everything like the, like you said, from the peers and, you know, like I wouldn't have been able to get there if I didn't drop all, you know, drop everything to focus. Cause th right. there's level, there's levels like, and then there's certain times where we, they say level up, but you know, there's like getting in, then there's really getting in, then there's really getting it. And then it, it takes a lot, anything I've ever done. I had that, that really was successful for me. I had to be obsessed. And I think there was an obsession with drumming in the very beginning, but then it got sidetracked. But then by the time we get to 2017, 18, I'm like all the way in. Like, and, and like that obsession is where the stuff starts to happen. There was the same thing with the SP back in the day and then writing the book. Like there's a level of obsession that has to happen. And yeah. all those guys, Quest, Love, Adam, they, they all have it. And so yep. to be recognized by them, you know, to get nods from Funky George from Cool in the Gang or, or you know, Steve Arrington, like to talk to them and, and to get, you know, to get the mutual respect from those guys, like that feels like 
a million dollars. Because a lot of times, like hip hop guy, like the hip hop people who still follow, like they'll comment, like, "Oh man, we want you to go back," and it's kind of like you get discouraged because you're just like, "Oh God, can I move on already?" And then all of a sudden, Quest Love will pop up, like, "Yo," <laughs> and you're like, "Damn!" It's like it's not that I'm not progressing; it's that the wrong people, the people who really appreciate it, have to see it. And you're right. Like I go through, you know, the comments and you know the people who or you know will like complain you know you go to their page and it's like all like mpcs and, and graffiti and like 90s rap stuff and then all of a sudden i have all these people who are drummers in their avatar and like i see just as many mf doom masks and drum machines as i see guys on stage silhouette holding sticks and i'm like it's kind of like quest love and where his audience has drummers but it's not just that there's producers there's artists there's authors there's yeah. And that's and that's what happens with social media. I've had so many career phases that everybody follows me for something different. Some people embrace the whole thing. Some people only embrace a chapter, you know, but it's like I just have to deal with it that I'm one of those guys. I'm not like a guy who only played drums for is and nothing else. It's like I'm right. going to have to deal with people who follow me for different reasons. And, you know, rap, you know, music careers are kind of like they're not flights, they're train routes. Like there's multiple stops. People get on and off. But very few people are on there from the first stop to the last. So that's something that, you know, I have to understand about the way that the way that that works. So yeah. it, it was just, yeah, just to say, you know, guys like that, of that ilk, like it feels amazing to to get an acknowledgement from somebody like that. And and, and I guess the, the one thing I didn't want because of the nature of my old rap career, like the jokey thing, I'm terrified of novelty. So, you know, in the beginning, people thought, the drums were kind of a novelty and it kind of stung because like you said, the connection with my grandmother, the connection with my dad, starting from the bottom, the amount of hours I put in, the sacrifice, like I lost relationships over it. <laughs> like, oh, you know, where is this going? You're going to be a drummer, you're 37 years old, like all that stuff. And then it's like to have it not be taken seriously, like it stings. So it's like, but I, I love it enough to not allow it to deter me. It's just, you got to get back down there and go extra hard. It's, it's validating to, to, you know, to get a call from a, somebody like an Adrian who has right. his choice. He has his pick of great drummers, you know, it feels better, but then it makes me want to work even harder. Cause I'm like, I almost feel like not that I had to work any harder than the, any other drum, but I feel like because of what I was known for, there's always an asterisk of like, people not taking me seriously almost like the celebrity dj like paris hilton's djing now and then all the djs start eye rolling so it's kind of like when i went into drums i was kind of feeling like i was in no man's land because nobody in that community knew who i was and it was like oh this rapper guy's playing drums now huh because his rap career dried up and then the hip-hop people are mad because i'm not doing it anymore so that two three-year period where i had no audience and I had no home, no tribe per se, you know, that made me want to work hard because I feel like people, me being self-conscious, like, yo, people think this is a joke. So like, you might want to go do X, Y, Z, but no, you better go practice. Practice. You know, you might want to post about X, Y, Z. No, you better post a clip of you working on your craft. Practice. <laughs> they, they're not, you know, I'm thinking, I'm self-conscious, like, yo, they don't take me seriously. It's a joke to them so it made me work harder the chip on your shoulder is a great motivator yeah yeah it's it's like an Allen iverson thing when you come into the arena 
and you see me play, you see me play, don't you? Absolutely. You see me give everything I got, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's my guy, man. I'm Philly, so. Philly, that's why I said it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jay, I got to ask. I've been staring at you on the Zoom for a while. What's up with the necklace with the piece around your neck? It's pretty okay. cool. <laughs> Every That's a conversation piece, man. Everywhere I go, somebody asked me about it. It's just mushrooms. It just looks like a psychedelic, trippy mushroom necklace. I got it on eBay like a year ago, and I was just looking for pendants because I always was a bead guy. Like I always wore a lot of beads, but then when you buy old beads, I saw, yeah, exactly. I saw you, and I was like, oh, he's got to be. You got to get them restrung because sometimes I'll be wearing it and and the beads spill all over the place. Yeah, and then you got to spend forty dollars to get it restrung, which is more than it's like five bucks from a street vendor, and then you got to spend forty dollars to get a new clasp and a new silk. So I said, well, I'm just going to go with metal pendants. And I bought this on eBay for 10 bucks, but then I realized it wasn't stainless steel and it started to rust. And my neck had a rust thing after about three months. Like I realized you can't sweat in it. So I was like, well, the pendant, the back of it is going to rust. So I have, but I always wear that with a shirt. So I was like, I bought two stainless steel chains, one rope and one like kind of like herringbone type of thing. Uh, I love it's it. just, you know, it's 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 very 70s looking. It's very psychedelic and it's like a unique, you know, I was always into necklaces and stuff like that. So it watches. So it's like a unique thing, you know, and watches drummer, you know, with time, like you got to, you know, I don't like being late for nothing. So, you know, I always I, I'm into old watches and stuff. So that's kind of like my thing. You know, uh, I love it, man. Yeah, I got to be honest. So I have the beads uh, that I have on now. I just got them because i wore the same pair of beads that i got as a gift from a friend in college in 99 so oh, they wow. never I, I restrung them many times they fell off in the middle of a dance floor numerous times you got to uh, find every bead because right if you yeah miss I lost, one, it won't hang right exactly yeah <laughs> i actually had to fill it in a couple times over the years because of said accidents but character yeah when i yeah. got married uh when i got married i felt like symbolically it was time to take off this you know, these beads that had carried me through, you know, all of bachelordom and young adulthood. And then my now wife got me these beads. I put them on the morning of the wedding. So after 23 years of those beads from Nepal, uh, yeah. I got these Palo Santo beads now. But yeah, I'm a necklace guy. Also, you're catching me at in the home office, some hoodies and a flat bill. But I, I'm always butterfly collars and bell bottoms. That's my whole vibe. So I love the steez, man. I gotta tell you, Big I'm looking at the shirts, collars. Disco, yeah, disco shirts. You know, I yeah, I always rock the disco shirts. So that's my thing. I appreciate yeah. it. Game recognized game. I I really do, man. And speaking of game, uh, you know, you had the good fortune as we talked earlier about hosting and facilitating the Red Bull, uh, give the drummer some podcast. And I understand yeah. that was a springboard for you uh, to develop relationships and mentorships, not just with the guests on the show, but a lot of heroes, icons, and, and some of it was like happenstance on the street. Some of it was otherwise. So take us through, you know, the highlight reel of, of that era and those experiences. Man, well, like the majority of that, it started in that fish and grits kind of era, like of being a jack of 58 trades, like I'm in the group, the super group. And so that was one of my 58 trades, like because I was drumming was my passion. The other stuff was kind of my job even though that sounds crazy. 
my job was to try to maintain this thing that I was like trying to give up on. So the, so I kept my sanity and it was part of my education, you know, to go back and interview these guys who might not be well known to the average person. They don't have the notoriety of Ringo Starr, or Buddy Rich or Dennis Chambers or, but, but just by virtue of being the most sampled musicians, like they help create new genres of music inadvertently. They're mostly jazz funk guys and studio session players who by just playing random grooves had no idea at all, like everything from drum and bass to house to hip house to hip hop to like modern funk to all, drum, every, everything was built. The DNA of it was from these guys and they never really got name recognition, but everybody knows their work second and third generation. So as a as a former hip hop producer and DJ and as a budding drummer at the time, I said, I want to do this because and also not only to give these guys their, you know, their props and, and expose this because no one else seems to be doing it. Like I didn't see a lot of it in like some of the drumming mags. But it was like these guys probably can answer all the questions I have as I'm pulling apart these records, all those years of sampling them and DJing with them and now all these years of trying to learn these grooves. So I started out with um, my number one influence on the drums is Funky George Brown from Cool and the Gang. His name doesn't get mentioned a lot with, with all those drummers, but he's definitely probably behind Clyde Stubblefield, probably the second most sampled drummer of all time. And we know Cool in the Gang is an ensemble piece. The the sum of the part, you know, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Like it's like it's a co collective genius of a band called Cool in the Gang. That's their motto. So you think of Cool in the Gang as a unit. You don't think of like it's not like a superstar band where this drummer, this guitarist. All righty, let's get some hands together now for Cool and the Gang. <laughs> You know, like I have been trying to interview him as my idol and that's my favorite band since I was 12. So I've been trying to track him down and I finally found him in the summer of 2015. And I actually interviewed him. And not only did he answer every question, he gave me some of the most valuable, probably the most valuable piece of music business survival information I ever got. Uh, we became actually friends from the interview because he's like, damn, you did your research. He's like, how do you know all that? And I'm like, listen, man, like, this is what I do. This is what I'm passionate about. So, you know, like every time he would come to New York for something, we would meet up. And uh, one time we met up and, you know, I was playing him some stuff. I think it was Zone Identity, my one of my side bands, a jazz funk thing. We did a cover of Let the Music Take Your Mind, Who in the Gang song. And I played it for him in an Uber ride
playing it for me. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, yo, you got some stuff. He's like, yo, you sound great on the drums. You've only been playing for a couple of years. Wow. He's like, that's fascinating, man. He's like, yo, it's awesome what you're doing. He's like, but let me tell you something. You better learn how to write songs. <laughs> He's like, let me show you what a ninth, uh, let me show you what a rootless ninth chord is. Now, this is like, I'm thinking we're just going to talk drums in the car. Like, yo, we're going to talk about single stroke rolls and double stroke rolls and syncopation. And, yo, what were you playing on NT and chocolate buttermilk and give it up? He's like, no, you have to learn how to compose songs. He said, you see all the hip hop artists that sample us. He's like, you know, when they're kids, he said, when people try to buy out their catalogs, all the money comes to us because we own the publishing. He said, yeah, you know, we made a song like Celebration. People play that everywhere. Weddings, Super Bowl, inaugurations, everything. Thing, he said, the drumming is great. He said, but you need to focus on learning how to compose and write music because a lot of the session drummers, as we know, that were sampled died penniless because they didn't, they got paid 200 bucks for the day to lay that, it was their beat, but they didn't get writing credit. So like a lot of, even a lot of the drummers I interview never saw a dime. Dwight Burns, who was the drummer for Archie Bell and the Drells, Tighten Up. He's part of a band called TSU Toronados, a local funk band. That was the backing band for that record. They just got paid as a backing band. He didn't get a dime for Tighten Up. He's still alive, he's still playing, but he's like, yeah, yeah Tighten Up is a, is a classic R&B song, billion views on YouTube. He said, we didn't get any money. Mike Clark played on God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters. He wasn't listed as a writer. Clyde Stubblefield is not listed as a writer on Funky Drummer. That's his group. So what How about George Bernard said, Purdy? How about Bernard Purdy? You did him and he's like, the hit maker he has he was on everything but he right. wasn't he was only listed as a songwriter on his records he sold okay. drum you know like his his records he's listed right. as a writer but none of the big stuff the guys who were session players got paid as session players but they didn't get writers so george saying that he's listed as a writer on cool and the gang splits their writing through, throughout the band so whether you sample the horn or the guitar are the drums everybody's fairly paid so he's one of the few drummers who gets paid <laughs> when they sample his drums and clear it so he you know he was like it's a great honor but he's like you have to think about your catalog as you age you're going to be 70 years old one day 80 years old one day you need to have music that makes money for you through ASCAP BMI and at the time all I have was I had never made any money through publishing because it was all samples why bother but then when I started doing drum break stuff, I started doing do-right stuff, my ASCAP money started coming in. And I was like, well, damn it, George, you save, you might have saved my financial life in the future. Like that. And George became just, a, he's an a excellent just musician, but then he's also a beautiful person. He's just really nice, very humble person. And he, you know, I'm grateful to just, cross paths and him give me that kind of information as somebody who's on the cusp of going from a beat maker producer to a composer instrumentalist to learn that early 
you know, like then, you know, when I get sampled by a Mad Lib and, you know, they, hey, hey, we'll put you on the publishing. Awesome. You know what I mean? Like Road of the Lonely Ones, they put me on publishing. You know, Danger Mouse, like, yo, this is what the, sometimes they'll pay, but one, the Broken Bells thing, he put me on the publishing. So it, it's like, now I understand the value of that. Right. Right? And, and as musicians, that's what we often have to do a session, get paid, and, and, you know, but then a lot of times, you know, like we have to stop. Not, not everything is gonna be long-term because you're the drummer and they're good. But sometimes, you know, learning how to compose, learning your chord structure, learning how to write actual songs and being involved on the writing side is your long-term financial. Okay, how does that, how do you activate that from him in the Uber introducing you to like the diminished ninth chord or whatever, and you getting the game of, okay, I got to write in order to get paid on the long-term soundtracks, like people sampling you, whatever. But again, like, now you got to actually write. So what did Jay Mumford do to learn like songcraft? Well, I was already, because that was like in September of 2016 when he told me that. So the first Do Rights album was done or was already done. And I had already started doing it right after that South by Southwest debacle. Like I buried myself in the basement for three months to finish the Do Rights album. But the majority of the first Do Rights album, Pablo wrote. And I just did the drums. At the end, I came in and wrote maybe two or three cuts. But from that point on, I really started paying attention because I have perfect pitch from my years playing bass. If you play me a song, I can tell you the key it's in, like right away. But I never had any use for it. It mean, layering samples, I had an ear for which samples went in pitch. You, you adjust the turntable to get the pitch and you layer things, you transpose the pitch. So I had that, but like in terms of writing from the piano, that started then. So I started writing keyboard riffs and melodies and chord progressions. After, like I got really into that. And on the second album, Do Right's album, Greasy Listening, I started, the writing started to become more 50-50 in terms of that. Gamma Ray Jones, Funky Bad Time, Pressure. Like then I started bringing Pablo sketches of songs with chord progressions from the keys. And then he would play guitar and create lines on top of those progressions. And then I would come back and redo the keys. I would do the drums. process okay. so when we you know in, in 30 years when they use a do-right song for the car commercial we're, <laughs> we're we're splitting that 50 50 
you know, yeah. and because that's important, you know, to understand that, you know, in terms of the publishing side. So, you know, I owe George big time for opening my eyes. Like, yes, drumming's my main craft, but it, it pays. I think they say most musicians should learn two instruments. I'm never going to master the piano because I don't have the time, but I can write from the piano at this point, from the keyboard. Like yeah. I'll pull out the organ or something and I'll write riffs and chord progressions. Yeah. And I was doing it kind of, I knew I had to for Do-Rice, but George made me realize like, no, this is a matter of survival. Like I need to build a catalog that that is usable in films that right. you know, in, in 30 years. Like they come to me and I ain't got to sweat. Oh shit, I didn't clear that. Right. Like, no, they, no, that's all original music. You can use it. So, you know, in 30 years when there's a film and they want to use it or a commercial or an ad of some sort, yeah, we wrote that. And that makes money for you in your older age when you can no longer tour. So that was big. The exploitive nature of the record business, starting with the drummers and the musicians and the session cats or even some of the singers out front that didn't get the publishing, didn't get the songwriting, right? And then we all know, no one more than you, that that cycle repeated itself with rap, with hip hop, with yeah. MCs getting signed, getting a bag, getting a, a car, whatever. But the long game, they didn't own their songs. I mean, we're still, you know, thank job, we're getting daylight. But I mean, that shit's been going on for 20 years. A whole generation of people don't know daylight because of that. So you, are the, like breaking that mold, even if it's on like a more niche scale. Like you're yeah. the type of artist that learn those lessons. Your heroes either learn them or you got the game from George. So you so you could circumvent some of that and, and that's going to serve you long term. But I'm just saying like that is a perpetuating cycle that has happened, I guess, three generations deep. It keeps going. And, and it, yeah, it's it, you, you have to learn it. And it came right as I was on the cusp. Not five years in, not right as I was like, yo, I'm going to go from a sampling producer, beat maker into a composer, a drummer. And like right as it was happening, like right on the cusp, like right before the first Do Rights album came out, as I was starting to go there, he put he gave me that swift kick like, yeah, you, you got to learn how to do that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, you're right. And I owe him. I mean, you That's know, I owe George. I mean, like that, like just the Red Bull thing in general, like there's stories with all of them, but like someone like George, you know, who I keep in touch with. Then there's somebody like Steve Ferrone, who, who was the average white band drummer. He played with Tom yep. Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, Duran yep. Duran, Session Cat. He played with Brian Auger. So he he's like Quest Love's guy. Yeah, he loves Quest Love's. Ferone is kind of like Quest loves the Ferone of this generation because he can play with anybody because right. his pocket and his time and his knowledge of music is so good that he can just play and he doesn't try to blow you away with chops. So like when I interviewed Ferone, I'll never forget it. The day I interviewed him was the day of my very first audition as a drummer. Or Do Rights is my band. The rock band with Pablo and his wife, Lulu Lewis, that was like I was in that because of Pablo. So I kind of got that job of nepotism. You know, and the other drummer wasn't showing up, but I'd never been on an audition. There was a record store named Good, called Good Records in the East Village uh, that John, shout out to John Skloot. Uh, one of the guys working there is a guy named Ben Pirani. He's from Chicago. He's a soul singer, uh, record collector cat. And he, you know, he had a deal with Coal Mine Records. And um, I used to always talk drums with Ben because sometimes he would 
he knew I played drums and he, he'd always ask me like, I want to get a kid on Craigslist. I want a vintage one. What do you think about Slingerland? What do you think about Rogers or Gamco or Gretchen? So we would be talking drums, but he, you know, and he heard some of my 45s that I bought in that had the drums, drum beats. And then one day I go up in there and this is right when the, do right around the time with the George thing, do rights record is on its way to being pressed manufactured. And I'm kind of like out of hip hop. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And he's like, hey, man, my drummer just bounced. And I got a resident, a one-month residency next month at uh, Come On Everybody in Brooklyn, which is a, a, night, a venue, every Tuesday night. And I don't have a drummer. And we start 10 days out. He's like, yo, 10 days out. I start, I don't have a drummer. He was like, do you want to come down and audition? And I was like, oh, damn. Like, you know, this is me, Jay Zone in the basement, breakbeat, jam with Pablo, Got just got booed at South by Southwest, getting got a tissue thrown, got a tissue thrown at me trying to rap. Seriously, I did. And oh, now I'm gonna play, I have to drive a whole band. I've never played live, so I'm panicking, but it's like you're never ready. He was like, you're waiting for when you're ready, but you're never actually ready. So that popped in my head. I was like, all right, when? So he's like, yo, the audition is next week or whatever at 8 p.m. I was like, all right, cool. So that day it was like 3 p.m. and I'm interviewing Steve Ferone on Facebook chat or whatever, messenger, uh, the, the phone call. And, you know, I interviewed Steve. And at the end, I was like, hey man, um, we're not taping anymore, but off the record, uh, listen, I got to audition tonight, man. And I'm kind of nervous as shit. Like I've never really played outside of this small group that I jam with. Like, I've never played really live in a band for an audience. like. You know, with singers driving a band live, and he, he was like, "Oh, it's your first audition." I was like, "Yeah." He was like, "Just play the song, man." And I was like, "He was like, because what happens is drummers start reaching for all kinds of fills, showing that they can play, and then it sounds like shit, and then everybody turns around and looks at you." And I'm like, "And that's what he had said in the interview." He's like, "Yeah, young drummers want to try to show their chops and impress." And and at that time, because I had abandoned the hip hop thing and I was going drummer, I was like, "Ooh, I'll show them," and I'm doing. I'm looking up this Buddy Rich lick on YouTube and I'm trying to incorporate it. And I got this double paradiddle diddle, Mac, Mitch Mitchell, Max Roach, did, did, and I'm like, yeah, good. And it's like, and I'm thinking I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna show my ass. And, and then it's like, Steve, kind of, he told me that and I was like, you know what? He's right. <laughs> I'm like, whether he's right or wrong, I'm gonna do what he says because he wouldn't be around for 50 years as a drummer if he was wrong. He wouldn't be Questlove's idol if he was wrong. He wouldn't be playing with Tom Petty, Average White Band, all these different, if he was wrong. So I went to the audition that night and I was just trying to groove as hard as I could. And I learned the songs from a SoundCloud. So just focus on the form and groove your ass off. Lock in with the bassist, groove, got through it. Ben came up to me, he's like, you got the gig. He's like, but you can play some drum fills if you want to. I was like, oh, okay, you asked for it. And that's what Steve Farrell said, if they asked for it. Right. And I got the gig, and that was the gig that expo that got me out on the road the next right. three, four years, you know, opening up for Nick Waterhouse. Like, people outside of hip-hop started to know who I was because of that gig. Singer-songwriters, other musicians. That was when they was like, yo, they had no idea who Jay Zone, the rap artist, was. And that made me feel good because I'm like, yo, finally, it's not a novelty. Like, oh, the rapper's on drums now. No, no it's a novelty. Like, not a novelty. It's like, yo, he's just, oh, you've only been playing a couple of years. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, you had a rap career. All that. Farone's advice, just when the tape stops rolling, 
I get that gig. I don't listen to him. I might have blown a gig. You know, like it's it just it's that. And, you know, Leslie Ming, I mean, God, Leslie Ming, <laughs> he's like they, they throw that big bro shit around a lot now on the Internet. Like, hey, big bro. Like, <laughs> I, he's really my big brother. Like Ming, he's like an older brother because he's like not old enough to be a parent, but he's like older than me, considerably, like, you know, maybe probably 19 or, you know, years older or something. But long story, I mean, long story, <laughs> kind of short, BT Express, which I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, was like one of those bands as a kid that I studied with the bass, funk band. Their financial backer for BT Express and Brass Construction was the doctor who delivered me. So my mother's OBGYN. His name was Coolidge Applebay. So the guy who delivered me, the first person to ever see me alive, put BT Express and Brass Construction on the map. funk in the DNA. So like BT Express was everything. And I used to look at the back of the album covers and see Leslie with this like lifesaver outfit on. And, you know, it's like he had like a striped, I don't want to pull it off the wall, but if you look at the back of the cover, he's got this crazy outfit. He had a wild afro. And I'm like, I'm a bass player. He's a drummer. But man, that guy's my idol. So I'm like 11 years old, 12 years old, you know, so whatever. Fast forward 20 years and I'm playing the drums and obviously he's one of the drummers I'm listening to because he's badass. And, you know, he went on to play with Kashif because Kashif was in BT Express with him. They were friends and he wound up playing on, you know, Howard Johnson and, you know, like um, uh, all those early 80s Kashif productions is less. He played on Borderline by Madonna. I mean, he was one of the session guys of that funk disco turning point in the early 80s. Like, Leslie was on most of that. So, you know, like, obviously Ming, I'm like, he's like a lifetime idol for fashion, for music, for everything. I'm coming back from the gym one day, and I'm going to the P.O. box to check my mail. Cambria Heights, two neighborhoods over. So I'm driving, it's a residential area, so I'm kind of driving slow through the streets because it's like quiet blocks. And then I see this guy in a Guitar Center drum-off shirt in front of his house. And I'm like, Guitar Center, drum off, like that's those gospel chop guys. But I'm looking at him like, he look, looks a little bit older. He doesn't look like a young church kid. I'm driving, I'm like looking at him and he probably thinks I'm doing a drive-by. He told me later, he, I, he thought I was doing a drive-by. And I'm looking at his face, I'm like, yo, his face is familiar. Ah, oh, never mind. So I keep driving. I get a block away, I'm like, no, that guy looks familiar. So I parked the car and he's talking on the cell phone. I walk up to him, I'm like, hey man, I see you're a drummer, guitar center drummer. You look really familiar. Are you a, like a session player, or a funk cat or something? He's like, yo, my name is Leslie Ming. I was like, your name is what? And I was like, my man. I'm like, do you know like for the last 26 years, like I've been studying your music, that BT Express outfit. And then I just started humming some of his drum beats and he was on the phone with somebody, he's like, let me call you back. 
And he's like, who are you again? I'm like, yo, man, I'm just, I'm learning how to play drums. I'm, this was 2014, so like I'm still green. And I'm like, yo, my name is Jay, but like, yo, the manager for BT, the, the backer for BT Express, financed, finance backer was my mother's doctor. I'm giving him all, he's like, this is crazy. And he's like, you play drums. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm learning. I'm new. I had a hip hop career. I've been playing about two years now, two and a half years. I'm, he's like, well, I got a drum set in the basement. Come on down and let's play. <laughs> I went down into the guy's basement. Yo, we hung out for like three hours. He's like, I just can't believe somebody knows who the hell I am. And I was like, man, nah, man. Like, And then after that, we became like friends because like I said, he's, old enough to be a mentor and elder statesman, but young enough to where we're not like two generations apart. You know what I mean? Like he's younger than my parents a lot, you know? So, and then, you know, over the years, like when I did the Red Bull thing, I had him come as a guest, obviously he played on Juicy Fruit by him too, made is a drum machine, but that's Leslie's drumming mimicked by a drum machine. So he was in him too, made, you know, playing that. So he's like, people don't know him by name again, but they know, his grooves, they know his work. They just don't know that's Leslie Ming. So I made it a point to let people know on Give the Drummer Some, these these are who these guys are. And then Leslie really wound up taking me on a mentorship. Like when he would do gigs, I would go with him because I'm younger. I would carry the drums, set up the drums. He taught me how to set up the kit here. He taught me how to angle the floor, Tom. He taught me a trick to tie your throne to your bass drum so it doesn't slide away. You know, he taught me all these tricks and I didn't do it for no money or nothing. I would just go with him on his gigs and I would just sit back behind the drums and watch his feet and like yeah. watch how he played. And he did a gig on a yacht and I'm just like the uh, the roadie. And to me, this is like an internship. Like I'm getting game from like a lifetime hero. And it's like with all of this and the Red Bull stuff going on, it was like at some point in 2017, 18, 19, I just woke up one day and said, I think I found my tribe. Like. It wasn't like with Jay's own, like, okay, I'm gonna be this character. People relate to the character. And then when I wanna be Jay, when I wanna be Jay Mumford, it's like, yo, it looks like I'm dealing with a, like a bunch of psychopaths. And it's like, well, your character is a psychopath, so you're attracting psychopaths. But now it's like that old that kid I was in fifth grade with the bass guitar and the big afro and funky and just everything funked out all the time. Like I'm more like I am when I was 10 than any other time in my life. And and all these guys are just, unlike the hip hop guys, some of them won't say names, the funk guys are exactly how I thought they would be. <laughs> like in terms of his people, just laid back, cool. There was no secret squirrel stuff. Like, yo, how did you play that beat? Oh, I'll show you that beat. Okay, dude, they're, they're super encouraging. You know, Ming calls me up. Yo, man, I love what you're doing. I see you on Instagram. Yo, your groove is, you know, and they encourage me. It's, and I ask questions, they, it's not like, with producers coming up, like, yo, I'm trying to use the SB 1200. Don't oh, get out of here, kid. I'm not showing you nothing. You know, like, right. yo, where do you, you go record shopping? Oh, I'm not telling you nothing. You know, like. That was hip hop, right. That, that was, was hip hop. It's very territorial and defend. Yeah. And with the drummers, they're just like, because no two drummers are going to play the same beat the same way. So if I hit up Deitch or Quest or Ming or George or anybody, and I'm just like, yo, that beat you play, they'll tell it to me because they know when I play it, I'm going to take it in a whole nother place. And it's just right. like, I finally feel at home. And like that radio show was where it all came together for me, you know? Oh man, that's so deep. And there's so much in there, like just beautiful. And 
you know, like the pendulum swinging back was what I was thinking at first when you were talking about like you're on the cusp and you get that that jewel uh, about publishing and writing right on the cusp. It's like you went through all that bullshit with J-Zone and the industry and your intentions and how you were received. So that was, you took a lot of combos, a lot of punishment, right? You're backed up in the corner, you're taking body blows on the ropes. And then the pendulum swung back and you got this gift of game of this jewel that's going to serve you for your life. And then one after the next, connecting with your heroes. You can't like, there's no drug, there's no anything that can mimic the joy the the reward of that interaction and imagine him him being this guy in the back of the cut only the real cats know who he is he's walking down the street on his cell and some dude runs up on him and not just knows who he is but knows everything about his fucking stuff and his beatboxing his rhythms to him imagine how that that old guy felt like to be recognized like that like yeah again there's no drug there's heart medicine quite like that so the reciprocity there is not lost on me. I really think that's beautiful. Yeah, no, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know what I mean? Like, were there were there any other cats you wanted to uh, reference from those? Like, I mean, they were all great. I mean, I learned lessons from from all of them. Dwight Burns, like I said, who played on Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. Like, he's down in Texas. Like, they they had like some kind of hurricane, and he, his church lost their drum set. And like, I mailed them a floor tom. You know, like, yeah. it was just like, Respect. you know, he was like, oh, Jay, thank you. He mailed me a TSU Tornado's vintage poster, which was like crazy. He just mailed it to me. He's like, I got one left. But he's like, wow. I found his name in the white pages. He's like, nobody's ever called me up and asked me anything. And he's like, you just found me? Like, how did you know? I'm like, listen, man, like, I love TSU Tornado's. And when I found out that that's the band on Tighten Up, again, back then, the band... Not until the 70s was it like the band is the star. Before that, it was all about the singers. The musicians in the studio, who the hell knew? It could have been Hal Blaine. It could have been Tarot Kay on. It could have been Purdy. It could have been anybody. Jim Gordon, you know what I mean? Jim Kelp, it could have been anybody. And it's like, here's this band. You know, they have their own trials and tribulations. They never made it big, shady stuff. They never made any real money. The song's a million seller. The guy could be bitter. But he's like, no, I just still like playing and, you know, I'm probably the only person who's ever written about him and him only, you know, like, because right. it just, I feel like he has a place in history. And the reciprocity, like you said, we're, we're friends on Facebook. And every time I post a drum video, he's like, get him, Jay. You know? <laughs> and it, it's like, these are guys who like made me want to play. And now there's like a mutual respect. And like, to me, there's no feeling in the world for everybody who comments like, yo, you need to go back to pistol pay taxes. There's somebody like, yo, man, I love what you're doing. Or, you know, like, this is awesome to see. And when they find out that I started playing later, like, yo, that's crazy. You picked it up late. Like, much respect for being devoted to the craft. And, you know, so like that, that balances it out. Because, you know, I also get a lot of crap because I, I totally changed directions and walked away from something. And whenever you do that, people who appreciate that are going to feel a way about it. But it's like at a certain point, you have to serve yourself and then you have to serve the music. You have to be devoted and like, this is where my heart is. So it's like, I have to put all the energy where it is and I have to have my tribe. I, I got to be around people, you know, drummers that and musicians that, you know, we're cut from the cloth and we respect these things. 
and it makes you happy. Like, you know, because mu music's a tough life, man. The money comes and goes. You're hot, you're cold. You, injustice, you know, people are going to sample me. I won't make a dime. Like, it's coming. Like, there's going to be all kinds of stuff. So, like, the little joy you get from, like, you know, the person who, who made me want to play recognizes me as a peer. And you get to talk to them. And it's like, you pinch yourself, like, not only from drumming, but, like, back when I was 10, 11 years old playing bass, my whole groove came from these guys. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yo, you get to meet them. And a lot, Robin Russell passed away from New Birth. I interviewed him. Like some of the guys are getting older, you know, yeah. and, and they're passing. And it's just very, you know, it's going to start happening because we're getting up in age. So it's like, I got it. They got a chance to tell their story. And I got a chance to get the best drum lessons possible, even if it wasn't one on one at a kit. The lessons and the stories they shared and the encouragement was the lesson itself. Word. Well stated. And again, just a beautiful sentiment. And it shows just how much you've kind of like evolved as a artist and as a human in the industry and been able to just, like you said, find your tribe, soak up the vibes, give game, get game, be a facilitator. You know, you got a lot of irons in the fire, but you're no longer a jack of all trades. You're Jay Mumford, the drummer composer. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm grateful that we got to, to rap. I consider myself an amateur musicologist. And like, this is the type of content that I want to facilitate, you know, just yeah. long, long form journalism, which, you know, has a lot of rabbit holes and a lot of lived experiences and a lot of tentacles. So I'm so grateful how generous you were with your time, how personal you got about your journey and all of it, man. It was like, this is why I do this shit. So thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate the journalism. So as well as somebody who's done it, that that's that's the same thing I did with my when I had the drummer podcast. They would say that to me, and that would make me feel good. So I'm saying it, you know, yeah. to you as well. It's just a. Uh, I told my wife. Important. I said. I said he told me I did my homework twice, and that's like you know. The, that's, that's the number. What, you know, that's yes. the number one thing. Like people exactly. who pay attention because you know I've done plenty. Of, that's why I'm leery about interviews because people hit up Wikipedia, then they hit you. And it's like, right. man, <laughs> it's like, this is, you know, it goes deep. Like journalism can't become a lost art, you know? So it's like, whenever somebody does their homework, I open up, you know, big time, you know, so. say thank you give thanks a deep bow of gratitude to my man jay mumford formerly known as jay zone but it's safe to say he has transitioned into this new era of his wild career with grace and with perspective and wisdom and obviously an openness to share which is a beautiful thing i've never met him before i feel like i know him really well now feel like y'all know him really well now. He's an open book. Literally wrote a book. It's out of print. But, uh, yeah. just This is why I do this shit. Because I learned so much in that conversation. It also filled in a lot of gaps. My own journey. There's parallels. 
a lot of human condition stuff in there and it's it's deep so shout out jay mumford you can follow all things jay on instagram he's jzone don't ig so j z j z o n e d o n t i g jzone don't ig at all of it at jzone don't ig and of course he's uh, jmumfordmusic.com so check him out dude has a voluminous catalog across the board and like we always do about this time i'm gonna play the vibe junkie jam it's a long podcast so i'm just gonna do one song what you're hearing in the background right now is this old school cool in the gang rated x we talked about some of that og cool in the gang stuff in the pod so i thought ride out with a little rated x finish up with funk monk by the do rights featuring money mark keyboard money mark does that ring a bell it's featured on many beastie boys joints on uh check your head and ill communication even into hello nasty an incredible carpenter as well as keyboardist just a, like jay's own a jack of all trades so when i saw money mark affiliated i knew it would be right on time and indeed it is so that's how we're going to ride out that was actually kind of how i got brought into the funk to be honest was being a beasties fan and hearing these funk jams and realizing years later there's like emulating the meters even said so in that beastie boys story documentary play book thing that happened a couple years ago but i digress but that's why i picked that song and it's just uh it's kismet as they say so money mark the do rights funk monk vibe junkie jam this is when i say goodbye jobless and we'll see you next time yes indeedy
Thank you.